Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, and this is the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast. On June 9th and 10th, POMEPS held its annual conference. Because of COVID, we had to do it in a virtual format, which had the advantage of allowing us to record some of the fascinating panels in which we discussed a wide range of issues of great relevance to scholars working in the field of Middle East political science. This week, we're going to present the second of the panels in this conference. It's called Confronting Old and New Obstacles to Political Science Research. And our thinking was that there was such a wide range of issues, such as the effects of COVID-19, stopping people from going into the field, so many wars, civil wars and violence, blocking access to other areas. And of course, the growing trends of political repression, making it increasingly difficult to carry out political science research, as well as the arrests and, uh, and crackdowns uh, on researchers from the countries in question, including dual nationals. With all of these issues facing the scholars who work in our field, we asked five scholars to talk about some different aspects of how all of these issues confronted their research and how they've tried to grapple with them. We hear from Nermeen Alam of Rutgers University. Then we hear from Mert Arslanov of Boazizi University in Turkey. Then we hear from Larissa Shomiak of CIMAT in Tunis. Then we hear from Janis Julian Grimm of the Freie Universität Berlin. And finally, from Sarah Parkinson of Johns Hopkins University. Thanks for listening to our program. Our first speaker is Nermeen Alam of Rutgers University. One of the overarching questions is what challenges does patriarchal authoritarian state or setting pose to or for researchers of gender politics? What is a patriarchal authoritarian setting or state? Uh, in a patriarchal authoritarian setting or state, the president takes on the um, hyper-masculinized image of the father figure who ostensibly takes care of the nation slash family. Um, his views are thus unquestionable. Um, those who challenge the regime or challenge him do not deserve morally restrained treatment. Uh, and women who dissent do not deserve um, any dignity or rights. And, and this patriarchal character of many regimes in the region does not just affect the agenda of women's rights, but if you get to think about it, it also affects the agenda of rights largely, the social contract between the state and the citizen, and it spills over to power relations in the private sphere. Um, what does this mean for the study of gender and politics and gender-based violence in the region? It means that, that the state is not always a fair arbitrator, uh, but rather the state in many cases is the perpetrator of gender-based violence. So during interviews, um, stories of state uh, violence ranged from extreme um, heart wrenching stories of rape in prison, uh, virginity tests, um, and harassments by police officers to the everyday morality policing by the state and its agents. Um, so for example, some women described the difficulties of trying to issue a new ID card with a new picture um, after they took off their uh, veil or after they took off their headscarf. Uh, in an authoritarian patriarchal setting, uh, researchers does, and not surprisingly, continue to face the long-standing challenge of how to keep themselves and their interviewees safe. 
experiences of um, gender-based violence is often an experience uh, or is largely an experience of state violence, where in some cases the state directly inflicts the violence uh, or indirectly inflicts the violence by uh, failing to provide the legal framework necessary to protect women. So these women who share their stories are providing a counter narrative to the state. So it's not a topic that escapes the state uh, radar. So during in-person interviews, I often find myself, and I know many of my colleagues will, will share the same experience, are forced to change the topic, uh, to change the, the, the topic because you know the bystander or the waiter it was giving us the look. Um, because see also at the, at the heart of gender and state violence is also society that doesn't always uh, condemn the gender power hierarchies. So during interviews, you have to think about the red lines that are inscribed by not only the state, but also the red lines that are inscribed by society. And these red lines are often blurry. Um, and you're left feeling that power is everywhere and, and power is nowhere. The move to carrying out online interviews as much as we would like to think uh, did not completely resolve these challenges. Um, so while, for example, some of my interviewees uh, requested to carry out the interviews over Signal, which um, many of you know is an encrypted messaging app um, with enhanced security. However, some were also faced with family surveillance. Um, and thus discussing these issues online while the family was around was, was, was just out of the question. Um, and I have to say that I was hesitant to carry out interviews online. And as the lockdown dragged on, I decided to try and carry out some interviews, but largely with participants who I have interviewed in the past uh, during my previous in-person fieldwork. So the relations of trust are already there. But what I found is that while I was able to provide my interviewees with trust since they knew me, I couldn't fully provide them or show them my empathy and, and, and sympathy on online platforms. Some of my participants uh, were unable to keep the camera on since it ate away at their data. So the, the lack of eye contact, as simple as that, something as simple as eye contact, the lack of eye contact meant that, that the basic human contact that reassures that shows support, that shows that you get it. You know, it, it wasn't there, it, it just was not there. And as much as you try to convey it through your tone or you know, through your words, something remained uh, missing. And I'll, I'll conclude with two thoughts slash questions. Um, first, researching and studying gender uh, politics is policed by not only the state, but by large segments of societies in the MENA region. Um, and such policing takes different forms online versus in person. And since I believe that online is going to uh, stay with us, um, we just need to acknowledge that regardless of the medium, it's always present, which raises the question of how do we assess the risks of in-person interview versus an online interview where our interviewees are miles away. Um, less risk to us researchers does not mean less risk to our subjects. Um, second, 
the ethics, the feminist ethics of care when we carry out interviews with vulnerable populations is exceptionally difficult to maintain, to carry out and to execute online, which raises the question of how do we establish and communicate not just relations of trust, but also empathy as our interviewees um, share their most intimate experiences of sufferings and, and resilience. I will stop here and uh, I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Namin, for those um, really important comments. Why don't we go to Mert? Hello, everyone. Uh, great to be here among you and see so many familiar faces, particularly after um, two years of not traveling for international conferences, in my case. So this is a great opportunity. Um, and I want to thank uh, Mark and the POMAPS team for inviting me to speak on this session about the current situation at uh, Boazici University, where I'm an um, assistant professor of uh, political science since uh, November, October 2016, and and kind of the general state of Turkish academia uh, as well. So both for me and my colleagues at Boazici, uh, these are really important platforms to reach out. So uh, we are really grateful for the uh, this act of international uh, academic solidarity. So today, rather than speaking about um, specifically about the challenges of doing political science research, I'll briefly update you on the state of Turkish academia under Turkey's competitive authoritarian regime, um, which is basically threatening um, high quality teaching and research in all disciplines at this point. It, but as you can imagine, it, it obviously hits hard, it's hardest the, the critical uh, uh, social, uh, social sciences. So as some of you might have uh, imagined, uh, might have followed students, faculty members and alumni at uh, Boazici University have been protesting since, since January. So, so as faculty members, we've been uh, holding daily vigils by turning our backs to the university president's office um, every day since, since, since January. And, and students have been organizing many on and off campus protests which at one point, especially in the winter, spread across multiple cities and as you might expect, uh, met with heavy-handed uh, police uh, repression. Uh, protests began after we learned on the midnight of um, uh, January 1st that President Erdogan had appointed a new president from outside our faculty members to our university uh, without any prior consultation or even you know, some sort of informal notification. Uh, this was the first time since the military regime of the 1980s uh, that someone from the outside the university was appointed as the rector. Um, and reflecting a common trend uh, in recent rectoral appointments, uh, the new president, Milik Bulu, is a, a former politician from the ruling AKP. He has also been uh, the president of two other universities previously in his full-time academic career of, of 11 years. So, in many ways, the developments at Boazici is simply the latest uh, stage in the obliteration of any semblance of academic autonomy in Turkish public university system. Uh, Boazici has been one of the few remaining relatively autonomous public universities where um, faculty members could still exercise their academic freedoms in research, teaching, and hiring uh, without you know, harassments or impositions from, from higher um, authorities. Uh, the legal framework of Turkish public university higher education system had autocratic features from the very beginning and, and especially since the 1980 military coup. 
but at least until the 2016, the faculty members could vote for candidates from among their ranks uh, for university presidents, even though the last say was given to the, pres you know, the president of the republic uh, who could choose among the top three candidates. Um, following the 2016 coup attempt though, um, Erdogan dismantled um, rectoral elections through an emer emergency decree and made himself the sole decision maker. By this time, most public universities were already under the control of the ruling party. Um, nevertheless, the legal change allowed uh, the party to impose its control over the few remaining and often the most qualified uh, public universities in the, in the country. And this kind of you know, loss of um, <coughs> legal autonomy has taken place within the context of a broader crackdown on academics. Um, again, you might <coughs> remember in January 2016, like six months before the coup, uh, more than a thousand academics from various public and private universities signed a petition uh, criticizing the government's violations of human rights in the Kurdish Southeast and called for an end to the war that resurged after the you know, breakdown of the peace process with, between the state and the PKK. Um, following the petition, you know, these academics were targeted, stigmatized, and then prosecuted for, with terrorism charges and some of, him, some of them were put actually under arrest. Um, following the coup, uh, coup attempt, uh, government under the state of emergency enacted series of midnight decrees uh, to purge peace petitioners from public universities, uh, from, but also from some private universities uh, from their academic posts, uh, put them under travel bans, uh, like confiscating their passports, uh, preventing them from taking any teaching jobs in public or, or private institutions. Uh, in the meantime, academics allegedly associated with the Gulenist network uh, were also purged uh, uh, from, from, from academia. Uh, so during this period, Boazici was one of the few institutions which did not purge its faculty members um, thanks, to, thanks to its you know, de facto autonomy. Uh, because these purge lists were actually prepared by the top administrators in the universities and then you know, given to the, given to the, uh, the cabinet. Um, so from where we stand, this latest appointment decision is actually an attempt to fully institute uh, the government's control over our university and in a way actually over the entire public university system and turn it into a politically loyal space in tune with the ideological agenda of the uh, ruling uh, coalition. And what that signifies in practice is the imminent threat of intrusions into our teaching and research, purging of dissident faculty members, crackdown on pluralist campus life, recruitment of political loyalists to, 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 you know, to departments and particularly to social sciences as uh, government commissars. Um, and unfortunately, the developments since uh, the decision, the appointment decision, confirm our worries. Uh, in February, government announced, again, Erdogan announced actually with a, another midnight decree that the foundation of a school of law and a school of communication without any pre prior request or preparation by the university body. So we expect kind of these two schools to be the institutional sites for recruiting new academic cadres willing to work with the appointed rector and redesign the university in line with the political expectations of the government. Because at this point in the university bodies, in the commissions, the Senate and all these bodies, the rector doesn't really have uh, uh, any significant following. So he needs actually new, new, new uh, faculty members. Uh, recently, we began to see some intrusions into the uh, contracts of part-time faculty members 
uh, who've been, you know, uh, some of some of them being, you know, vocal critiques of the administration. Um, also, there is crackdown on, you know, campus pluralism and, you know, equality. Um, so the administration closed down the LGBTI club in line with the rising uh, homophobic discourse of the uh, national government, terminated the contract of the administrator, administrator of the sexual harassment prevention office, again, in line with the rising misogynist policies of the uh, government, and initiated disciplinary action against you know, protesting uh, students. So despite all this resistance that has been going on now for the last six months, uh, we've been already losing some, some, some ground. And kind of as you know, a few concluding remarks, um, you know, what's been going on in the academia in Turkey in general and what's, what's happening at Boğaziçi um, can only be understood in the context of Turkey's transformation into an authoritarian regime. So in a way, academia is one of the sites, one of the institutional sites where we can actually trace this, this uh, first the democratic uh, backsliding and, and then later the democratic breakdown of the, uh, of the regime. And in a way, you know, our own crisis kind of reflects like two of the interrelated and constitutive dimensions of this process, right? So the extreme autocratic centralization of all decision-making power under which political loyalties emerge as the prime standard for all bureaucratic uh, appointments and a will and a desire to, to, to eliminate any institutionally autonomous spaces and in fact, you know, colonize those spaces you know, whether these are municipalities, professional associations, or the courts, or, or universities. And, and I must say, this is driven by, you know, the, the, the rationale of autocratic control, but it's also driven by, you know, desires uh, and fantasies uh, that is embedded in the ideological orientation of the government. So these are also like symbol acts of symbolic conquests uh, uh, that are embedded in the long tradition of especially like uh, Turkish um, uh, Islamism. Um, so the immediate outcome of such an orientation is a pervasive deinstitutionalization of any aspect of social and political life, and it comes with a very heavy toll of dispossessing the public uh, of the knowledge, experience, and the values that have been nurtured and, and, and accumulated and embedded in these institutions over, 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 over decades. So um, I must say, you know, as a political scientist, you know, studying protests and social movements, uh, being involved in this mobilization under an authoritarian context, you know, has been emotionally very intense, uh, but also it's been, you know, an ex extraordinary experience. Um, and in that sense, I must give credit to the government for giving me the chance to do kind of an autoethnography of uh, some of the subjects that I've been, you know, studying for, for, for some time. You know, whether it's, you know, organizing efforts in these, you know, excruciating deliberative forums or, you know, witnessing on the ground how, you know, the police represses protests and, and the, the entire actually repertoire of repression that the government deploys, both uh, physical repression, but also discursive repression through stigmatization, defamation uh, and polarization of, of public discourse. But it's been also, and, you know, this is my, you know, last comment you know it's been also quite rewarding and you know kind of extraordinary to see how our students navigate this terrain and how creative they've been in in deploying their counter frames to undermine the government discourse and effectively use all sorts of media tools uh, to to intervene directly into the public uh public debate so 
This is where we are at. Uh, in short, Boğaziçi joined an array of localized struggles that have been that have emerged in the past two decades against AKP's authoritarian intrusions into autonomous institutions and life spaces. And in that sense, it reflects the persisting democratic resilience of Turkish civil and political society, uh, in my opinion. Um, but ultimately, like although we are determined to continue this, this, this resistance as long as we could do, uh, it seems like you know, the, the fate of the university is like intimately connected to the fate of the regime. Uh, which is quite powerful legally and coercively, but you know, po politically at a very vulnerable uh, stage at this point. So, uh, so to some extent, we are also betting our um, chances on that. So, thank you for listening to me, and you know, I'm happy to elaborate on any of this stuff. Thank you for sharing that with us, Mert. Uh, it's very important. Why don't we go to Larissa Shomiak uh, from CMAP? Thank you, Mark, and to everyone at Pomeps for inviting me to partake. Um, in this panel and speaking alongside my wonderful colleagues. Um, I wrote up my comments, so I'm going to uh, read them today. Um, so in lieu of thinking uh, separately about the new and old obstacles in political science research, um, I want to instead think about how uh, the old obstacles in many ways are also the most important ones and have become more visible as a result um, of the pandemic and its effect on in-person research fieldwork. I'm of course not ignoring or dismissing the inability or difficulty to conduct in-person research in dangerous political contexts of harsh authoritarianism, extreme violence and war, or places where research permits are difficult to obtain. Some locations have always been difficult to access. And as a result, these are also the cases that require our scholarly attention most profoundly. But I want us to think about why we do field work, uh, what we hope to gain from it, and what kind of scholarship we ultimately hope to produce. How do we decide early on what our engagement with the field will be? In answering these questions, I think we can more clearly link long-standing obstacles to some of the new ones, um, including but not limited to the conflict and pandemic-related challenges of our current times. Um, one set of obstacles, which are less of an issue for the POMEPS community, but do affect political scientists, are the questions of language acquisition and the many new shortcuts to overcome the inability of the researcher to directly engage with her interlocutors, the process of data collection, and engagement with the complex, broad, and wide political fields we study. These issues have been highlighted by the pandemic, um, but have been in the making for quite some time. I want to construct my ideas today around two, um, uh, around two themes. The first is a push for investing in the high startup costs of doing research to overcome shortcuts and thereby produce superior work on the region. And the second is the time commitment necessary for fieldwork, no matter which method a scholar chooses to employ. So fieldwork, as we all know, is exciting, difficult, exhausting, complicated, emotionally draining, um, and can also be immensely rewarding. In fact, it should be rewarding. As our language skills improve with use, we begin to understand critical nuance. We, um, as we slowly build a network of contacts and interlocutors, we learn so much more from stories, conversations, the media sphere, the powerful relationships between who, behind who produces what type of reporting, analysis, and opinion survey work. The startup cost is a multi-year career investment to be in a position to even begin this kind of meaningful engagement with the field. It is also an immense luxury. Um, besides time investments, we have the heavy cost of obtaining adequate funding and finding ways to take away from our institutions, professional commitments, families, and other life obligations. There are, of course, uh, shortcuts to knowledge production, such as outsourcing data collection, but that can negatively impact the essence and substance of our work. 
These shortcuts come at a great expense in terms of the eventual contribution and they cannot, nor should they be substituted for the comprehensive um, and encompassing work in the field. So what I want to highlight is the tension between the commitment to in-depth and sustained fieldwork and some of the most recently emerging um, fieldwork trends in political science. Increasingly, and this is kind of this is from my position watching, you know, um, and, and advising researchers as they come through the field, political science seems to encourage the type of work in which the research question, if not the entire project, is disengaged with a specific context of the field research site and its broader environment. Practices such as truncated and short research periods at the beginning of a project, and particularly outsourcing data collection to individual fixers and companies. Um, risks um, risks for the imperial for the empirical material being completely decoupled from the substantive sustained analysis and theorization. So this is not necessarily the case. This doesn't happen with every project, but it is a real risk. Um, it can also contribute to a new type of knowledge production in which the sites that we write about are so abstracted that they no longer that they are no longer recognizable to the people with deep knowledge um, of those cases and places. My colleague and dear friend Jillian Schwedler has spoken about this extensively, and she tells a story about how one of her interlocutors in Jordan told her that she didn't recognize Jordan in most political science analyses. She was de devastated but listened and uh, came to realize that the real political struggles there had less, um, had less or something or, or, or nothing to do with political parties or parliaments, for instance. Let me give another example. Um, last year, the University of Tunis Department of Political Science, which is a new department created post-revolution that advances an interdisciplinary and interdepartmental approach to the study of politics, power, and democratic institutions, organized its first political science diagnostic uh, workshop, in which one principal guiding question was, why do we not recognize Tunisia in the massive explosion of work done on Tunisia? Of course, it is important to know that there are clear politics behind this or any university system who gets to determine these debates. So for instance, um, what a faculty member here would like to see published uh, by an international and Anglophone researcher. While at the same time, some Western political science has methodological commitment, uh, commitments with which our colleagues in the region are simply not familiar. But the point is that there is a disconnect and we must take this disconnect seriously. How and why did this come about? Why is knowledge production by our colleagues in the field oftentimes dismissed or reduced to dis as, as descriptive, area studies, non-scientific, and so on? What is lost by creating a new type of fieldwork, the kind in which new methods are explored and tested and are prioritized over exploring new insights about the field set itself? Again, the problem is not the method, but rather a truncated fieldwork commitment. Some of these trends were recently addressed in important discussions at the SSRC and APSA-MENA section in the context of how to overcome research challenges posed by the pandemic. Linking back to the original question, uh, what perhaps most visibly distinguishes old and new obstacle is a wealth of information that is now out there. Um, online newspapers, live streaming of television shows, online radio, digitized archives and academic journals, contentious and, and telling debates on social media, indexing of protest speeches, commentaries on TikTok and Facebook stories, TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram stories, and so on, that point to a way in which we can actually engage with the field in new and extremely important ways. Why should fieldwork, as Sarah Parkinson, who speaks next, asks, be limited to boots on the ground? How should we expand the notion of what constitutes the field? Um, or as Sarah mentions, reciting. The new field that has become accessible to us is by no means a substitution for the traditional field, uh, for traditional fieldwork, but it is an important element to be integrated um, in the overall way in which political scientists produce knowledge on the Middle East and North Africa. 
And this, of course, includes the high startup costs of language acquisition, the continuity of the field when we cannot be there in situ to our um, continuous engagement with understanding context, trends, debates, and relationships. Of course, nothing replaces in-depth and in-person work. And how we learn through, uh, and how we learn through the stumbling upon new information, through unexpected and expected encounters, the perusal of bookstores, newsstands, and private collections, um, and the side conversations that unexpectedly turn what we thought we knew on its head. But we are no longer limited to traditional fieldwork, and we can supplement what we know through our access to a wealth of online materials and information that even a decade ago were hard to come by. So I remember when I was not able to send emails uh, from the field or I had to go to a home booth to call you know, uh, my family and so on. So this has shifted in really interesting and important ways. Um, so to go back to methods for just a moment, perhaps one new obstacle to political science research is that our discipline has become so clearly driven by the method that we choose, that we, that we use. Um, of course, we're all trained in specific methods, so I'm not arguing against methods per se um, or using what we know. The issue is, and of course this relationship is debatable, that for much uh, work these days, the method defines the research question and very often is prioritized over facts on the ground or having something substantively new to say about the case or field site. At times, the field has become a place where ideas can be played out in somewhat imaginary settings. Um, even the exploration of under what conditions does X or Y occur. Um, but, and this perhaps could be grouped in the new obstacle section, um, why do methods driven questions preclude the engagement of analysis and thoughts about these conditions produced by others, often scholars of other disciplines, other research traditions, other methodological orientations, even other types and styles of writing. I think that the disconnect between what we seek to find um, or what we think is happening and what is visibly going on could be a result of this kind of framing. Another possibility is the hesitance to become too familiar, um, too much in the weeds with the places we study. And um, political science research, I think should not be reduced to this kind of localitis that diplomatic and aid workers try to avoid, nor should political science research fear over familiarity with the site as a threat to objectivity or scientific ambitions. So no matter which method, long-term engagement with the site or sites of research is so central to the kind of work that pushes the boundaries and limits of political science. If I look at my bookshelf, the books I return to over and over and over again are all the ones in which the author invested serious time in the field, making substantive theoretical contributions while also telling so much new about the site itself, new data, new materials, new literatures, completely new findings. When our questions are constructed in limited ways, actively, avoiding um, temptations of inductions, so even if we don't want it, the, just the temptation to think in that way, we are hard pressed to inspire the kind of big questions that can push the limits of the field. And I think this is what is increasingly going on um, and is something that perhaps we don't solve, but at least we can think and talk about. So thanks again. Thank you so much, Larissa. Um, now we will hear from uh, Giannis Grimm. Giannis? Yeah, thank you, Mark. So uh, um, I guess the topic that I want to focus on in the next seven to eight minutes, hopefully, is the question how um, uh, COVID-19, how the pandemic has really impacted the ways that we are used to collecting our research data, either through fieldwork or also via new online methodologies, and how this has exacerbated uh, a couple of what I think are worrying trends that we should aim to address more systematically and seriously in the coming years. So I should add that some of these considerations built on the conversations that we had within the frame of the Safer Research Project, which is a collaboration in which actually quite a few members of the POMIPS network participated, many of whom are here now either as authors or as discussants, and which concluded last year 
uh, with the publication of a handbook on, on doing safer field research. So what we tried to do in the Safer Research Project was to come up with practical guidance um, on the, the very practical implications of some of the ethical norms uh, that drive our research, such as do no harm, informed consent, etc. And the idea was here not to provide a one-size-fits-all instruction for how to do fieldwork in MENA or beyond, but rather to show how some ways how scholars, both junior and senior, can take more informed decisions on how to protect themselves, their partners and interlocutors. And connected to that was also the aim to move the discipline from, you know, from a passive observation uh, of risks and increasing risks to researchers to a more active decision making um, on issues of personal security. And this crucially included already the issue of digital security and data protection. So, of course, this book was written before the pandemic, but even before uh, Corona, the trend was visible that social scientists were increasingly reliant on the digital infrastructure um, of which they often have, let's say, only a rudimentary understanding to say it mildly. And uh, since COVID-19, I think this dependency has become painfully obvious. So we rely on Zoom, on WebEx to communicate and participate in conferences, such as this one as well. We use a plethora of cloud services to share our results and our data sets. And we try every other week, every other week, we try a new app or software tool for brainstorming, for project planning, for lectures, etc. And especially younger and more tech-savvy researchers have, uh, of course, compensated for lacking field access by switching gears, uh, gears as some of my uh, co-speakers already mentioned, and relying on online interviews, on social media observation, or on local RAs with whom, again, they communicate via different apps or software, some of them really new, um, to get their research done. And this is not problematic per se, but what is worrying, uh, I believe, is that the increasing dependence on little known technologies has not yet led to a greater emphasis on digital literacy education within the profession itself. So even after a year of Zoom seminars and the like, we still lack compelling answers to the question how we as researchers should deal with questions of surveillance, of untransparent technologies, um, of unclear technologies. We don't even know how they work. And we still treat digital security as a sort of a side aspect to our projects rather than an integral part to project planning. And in the meanwhile, the tabula rasa, uh, as regards the way we are all doing political science, has many unforeseen consequences. And, and I'll just name three pertinent trends here. So for once, moving research online risks, and this has been mentioned before, uh, more insensitive uh, gorging of what is and what should be done and how it should be done. So researchers are simply not physically there to assure a safe encounter with their interlocutors and a safe space also for interviews, or to also check off, uh, after them afterwards. Um, at the same time, the burden of coming up with secure connections and uh, you know, safe places to store data, safe places to transmit data to mostly global Northern universities is more and more placed on local RAs together or uh, on local researchers. Um, and this is of course problematic because in field sites where state surveillance is rampant, uh, research often requires less and not actually more data files, phone records, and other interceptable communications. In general, and this is the second point uh, I want to make, the digital fieldwork adds also an additional digital barrier to solidarity and effective solidarities with RAs, but also with the objects of inquiries. It simply makes uh, the real world problems that, that, we, that we investigate, they make, it makes it more remote, especially for researchers that are new to a certain country, a certain region, uh, this, it's very hard to estimate the risk of their own interventions, but even supervisors and senior researchers 
who are often older and less acquainted with new technologies uh, um, used by their students are now less able to provide actually safe and sound advice and thus fulfill, fulfill the duty of care, um, you know, as well as they did uh, when it came to classical research of researchers going into the field and returning. Um, so that's the second point. And thirdly, and finally, but crucially, I think one major problem with uh, digital technology and with surveillance is that it's by definition hard to detect. So the problem, and this problem is exacerbated by the fact that many researchers lack sound technical knowledge. We every day make a lot of passive, habitual, accidental decisions that we're not even aware of when we use technologies. We click on agree on user agreements that we neither understand nor read. And consequently, it's also hard to calculate the risks that, that may arise from such surveillance um, and that we as individual researchers, but also our interlocutors face when engaging with us in communication. So for sure, uh, one thing's for sure, even if we don't know, interviewing in virtual platforms offers a much more ready site for capture and listen than any physical encounter does. Uh, but the problem is that most infringements remain completely untraceable and hardly are hardly known ever to the public. And to give you an example from Germany, where I'm based from in Berlin, uh, in, in Germany, I just found that three of Germany's largest universities uh, just recently approved the use of moderated clubhouse sessions as a substitute for focus group discussions. And the reason why they did this was uh, actually laudable. I mean, it was to compensate for the lack of field access of students and to find a way you know, to deal with the risks of traveling and group meetings during a time of pandemic and infection risk. However, at the same time, actually, as these projects were approved, you had already newspaper reports coming from Lebanon where critics of Hezbollah were threatened with violence in clubhouse. And you had these reports just two weeks later from Egypt where human rights defenders identified uh, special clubhouse chats that were set up with fake profiles intended to entice critics to reveal themselves and their opinions publicly. So not only are these cases not even known to the people that approve a certain software at the university level because of language barriers, lacks of access, et cetera, but also our established fieldwork courses, fieldwork trainings, et cetera, not really designed to deal with such risks that come with these increasing technological dependence. And this, um, this is why I think it's really important that we start reflecting more about the ways uh, to minimize potential harm when our profession is more and more dependent um, and uh, on datafied uh, software, and um, when, when we at the same time don't really understand even how that software works. So this doesn't mean, of course, we all need to become digital security experts, that's not what I'm asking for, uh, on top of writing and teaching, etc. But I think we should aim to become more digitally literate in a way, uh, and reflect more on the risks of data generated falling into the wrong hands. And when I say data, I don't even mean only the collected data or the content. I mean, even the digital footprint we leave when communicating with field contacts by, you know, in, engaging with three different people, we place these people in a group and make them, um, you know, a potential target group for surveillance, even if only one of them may be on the radar, so to speak. Unfortunately, I think engaging with this topic more seriously may also entail accepting that some of the most convenient tools that we use in our everyday lives are the least adequate actually for research purposes, at least from a security perspective, see Zoom, see Clubhouse, see WhatsApp. But it also means that we uh, cannot simply try out from an ethical point of view, new apps, new softwares that become available every other week for our research in the hope that we just you know, might accidentally stumble across a tool that is both safe and easy to use. Um, after all, we are, many of us are researching real suffering of real people and their lives shouldn't be actually a testing ground for new methodologies and softwares and apps that we don't understand. 
So in a nutshell, I guess, um, um, I would uh, think we, we should really work on professionalizing the, de the, the ways we deal with these new risks and uh, identify and share best practices, ideally actually at the association level, because otherwise we really under risk undermining the very ethical frameworks that guide our research. After all, how much, you know, how much informed consent is really possible if you neither have the ability to grasp nor to comprehensively inform your research partners about um, the potential risks of their research participation. And I guess I'll leave it at that, but I look forward actually to discussing with, with, with you further. Thank you, Giannis. Great points uh, all around. Um, why don't we now turn to our final speaker, uh, Sarah Parkinson. Right. Hello, everyone. Um, and thanks, Mark, for inviting me to, um, to give this talk. And I really appreciate everyone who has gone before me. And I'm going to just build substantially, I hope, or I will attempt to build on everything that all of you have said. And it's probably a lot less articulate, but um, or well, a lot of what we're discussing here in terms of ideas about old and new is really just evolving issues that are being mediated by new technologies that are being shaped by the context of COVID. But I don't, what I see is the massive issues to political, that, that sort of negatively affect political science research in the Middle East aren't particularly new. Massive inequality in resources, support, and modes of security available to scholars of different backgrounds who are working from different universities or not in university settings. Ongoing armed conflict, government and non-state actor intimidation of academics and researchers, whether or not they're in a university setting economic catastrophe, the fact that our friends at the American University of Beirut who are paid in Lebanese British pounds are making a tenth of what they used to, right? Um, economic precarity affects political science research in the Middle East. Um, we've already sort of talked a bit about Giulio Regini and the situation in Turkey. I'd also draw attention to the number of students who have recently been arrested while conducting research in their home countries. I draw attention to what happened to Lokman Slim, who was the director of UMAM in Lebanon, right? And the idea that in many of these places, um, and speaking as someone who works predominantly in Lebanon and Iraq, um, what we used to think were red lines are, are no longer there. And I know that many people who work in Egypt feel the same thing, feel, feel the same way. There are three main points that I'd like to discuss in terms of, let's say, um, either trends that I think we could recognize more in the context of these ongoing challenges, um, or things that have become, I would argue, more acute in terms of how they affect um, the potential for political science research in the Middle East. Um, the first is that, at least in much of my recent work on, um, on the ethics of, um, on, on sort of everyday ethics and conflict zones, one of the things that I've, uh, that I noticed and have now written about is that often academics are sort of operating from the assumption that they are the first on the ground, that they are the first to ask questions and not sort of recognizing the relational environment in which research is conducted. Now, often we think about political context, but we don't actually think about professional context where many of us as researchers are seen as, seen as or equated with humanitarian workers, security services, journalists, and even sometimes missionaries, right? And people have written about this extensively before. It's in Elizabeth Jean Wood's um, book. It is in um, all kinds of research on um, 
doing work in vulnerable spaces in sub-Saharan Africa, for example. Jesse Driscoll has written about researchers um, being mistaken for security services. So this isn't new, um, but I'm particularly interested, as many of us do work in spaces that are affected by humanitarian deployments, that are affected by massive journalistic interest about what harms can be done um, when researchers work under the illusion that they are the first to ask questions and what it is like to be the people on the receiving end of questions. And I wanna emphasize that this is across epistemological and ontological traditions, right? Over research is over research, whether it's surveys or ethnographic, all right? Um, but also certain types, and I write about, I use the term methodological cognates, certain types of um, research methods that political scientists are particularly likely to employ also, for example, mimic humanitarian assessments in ways that actually can really elicit prompted responses. So the argument that I'm trying to make here is that engaging in ethical research is actually deeply linked to issues of data validity and robustness, right? So if you don't realize about the ethical context that you're in and that people have been continuously asked questions for three months before a researcher lands on the ground, you're not getting this sort of pure data that the assumption in many epistemological traditions holds that you are. Um, people aren't acknowledging these issues and they're making claims that wouldn't hold up if they did. I see this in the context, again, I'm, I'm speaking from my own experiences in um, Lebanon and in Iraq, working um, specifically with refugee populations and in um, places that have been affected by armed conflict. But I'd also emphasize that there are ways in which this sort of dynamic where people are constantly asking questions like from journalistic interest, for example, could shape research outside of those types of spaces. I might be interested in humanitarian assessments, but when we think about, for example, really contentious legal cases where people are basically given language, um, Javier Ayero has, and Deborah Swinson have written about this in the context of ecological crises where um, journalists get really interested in particular spaces for being ecologically destroyed and their constant um, re-entry into these spaces basically seeds narratives. Um, so we have both an ethical question here in terms of over-research, in terms of people being exhausted, in terms of people being resentful, in terms of change not occurring, um, but we also have data validity issues. Um, I'd also note here, and this is something that actually Kurdish officials have directly spoken to me about, so I feel comfortable sharing it, is that other people's poor research practices are shutting down opportunities for scholars, right? And in some cases, this is just blatantly unethical work. In other cases, this is just poor work or work that is considered to be exploitative. Um, so I do think that we have an issue, again, in this relational environment where people might not distinguish between one researcher and the next, or between a journalist and a researcher, or between a humanitarian agency that has acted in an exploitative way or not. The point that I wanna talk about is, I would say a, a more drastic nature of shifts of incentives due to restricted research funding um, and truncated graduate student and tenure clocks right now. Um, and sort of the nature of the discipline. And I wanna talk about sort of the fetishization of novelty in both topics and projects, right? Um, 
So I, here I'd like to actually pick up on a point that Larissa mentioned, which is that there are really strong incentives right now to engage in parachute research, right? That is to show up in a place for a week, to say that you went there to sort of mask how long it actually was. Like I was there in June, 2010. Well, was that a week or was that the month, right? Um, and to basically get in, get out, to not really absorb the context, to potentially train a research team or engage a fixer. Um, Jillian also call, calls it drive-by research, and I sort of um, appreciate the violent connotations because this is to do violence, right? Um, and that this actually, people aren't really recognizing what it means to have all of the, the data collected by others, right? That this is not just a labor issue, that this is also a relational issue in the fact that um, people's experiences mediate that data. And David Monbury, for example, has written really extensively about this, as well as what it's like for local fixers on the ground in like Gulu in Uganda, which is a really over-researched site, for example, right? Um, so this is one thing where people can get big grants, have no contextual knowledge, and go and do whatever project they're going to do without really any attention to the space except to say they've been there to validate their research, right? Um, the second is that there are massive incentives to sensationalize, and this also gets to the idea um, that a couple people have mentioned, uh, Setany mentioned it in the last session, um, where basically there are like, what is the big issue, right? How do I get published on whatever issue? Um, and one of the things here that I noticed more, and I think that someone else mentioned this as well, is that um, people are, universities are more interested in getting their academics media attention in part because of donor issues. Many of us receive those emails like, oh, there's a crisis in wherever it is in the Middle East, like you do Middle East stuff, like can you speak to CNN or whatever? And it's like, I have no idea what's happening in that area, but my less educated colleague will definitely say that they know what's going on in that area. And it is an impediment to research in the Middle East because um, frankly, it uh, means that a lot of people are out there doing the kind of work that is insulting to people who are living in the region. Like, let's just say it like that, right? Um, the third, and this is something that, uh, Fatin and I have written about is that there are incentives to use narratives and categories that are unrecognizable to people in the region. And this speaks to things that both Jillian and Larissa have um, spoken about in public fora before. Um, and this is partially because of how funders shape research, but I think that this is also because of people's sort of um, desire to fit into the categories that are used in the discipline. The one that we critique in particular is sort of the Muslim Christian distinction when it comes to Lebanon or Iraq, um, in particular, just because this is an overused category that then becomes the only category that people study and portray Lebanon as a Muslim Christian political site, as opposed to a site that has so many different political dynamics, right? Um, this also became salient in a place like Iraq when Mike Pence was actively pushing Christian narratives and Christian politics and Christian organizations around 2018, 2019, right? Which meant that humanitarian organizations were picking it up. This shapes research in all kinds of perverse ways. And I think that we need to recognize this. Um, the second is the securitization of migration, right? So the idea that people are pitching things to grant makers, pitching things to potential um, organizational partners about like the threat of refugees, the threat of migrants. And I wanna shout out people like Kelsey Norman, Lama Murad and Rana Khouri, who have all been sort of confronting these issues on Twitter, right? Um, 
the clubhouse example that was mentioned, that Yanis mentioned, it, my, one of my main concerns here is the idea of, because there are these shifts in incentives, this idea of novelty, like I am sure that like 300 graduate students are out there right now being like, I will be the first person to publish these like on Clubhouse about these dissent, like these dissent Clubhouse rooms. And like, A, that's taking everything that's said in Clubhouse at face value, which is just poor research practice, right? B, there's no way to validate a bunch of it. Um, but C, it's really not thinking about all of the issues that Yanis just encompassed um, so carefully. Um, the last thing I'm gonna mention is that governments are increasingly using the bureaucracy of research against researchers. So for example, it came up in a chat in the last session, uh, the idea that everything is sensitive, right? What we think isn't sensitive might suddenly be sensitive. Right, and I've seen students denied research visas because of this. I've seen research, what I think is deliberately held up because of this. I do wanna emphasize that this happens in the US as well. I had a survey of firefighters denied last summer because the situation in Washington DC was deemed like so tense when it came to civil servants because of the protests that no one would allow me to survey firefighters of all people, right? But I think that this is particularly acute in the Middle East. Um, and the other things is that um, I think countries are getting very savvy to how IRB works in the United States and how ethics boards work in the UK, for example. So they're starting to charge a lot of money for local IRBs. And um, they're also starting to take a really long time to give extremely truncated um, sort of timelines for research. So Mark, I know I had one minute. I'm just gonna say a couple of things that I do think there are solutions. One of this is that there is an awful lot of methods research that many people in this room um, have been writing for decades and that not all graduate programs teach it, not all graduate programs teach fieldwork, but there, is, there are a huge number of resources. There's also an online bibliography for conflict research, but that there, is massive, there are massive amounts of work out there and that people need to be consulting it. Um, the other is that I think that we need to be talking more about creative citing and teaching grad students and junior scholars creative citing. And Larissa mentioned this, but I think about how people like Omar Siri have done work at malls and checkpoints and how Jose Ciro Martinez did work at bakeries. So thinking about how to more subtly cite studies that can get at many of the issues that are fundamentally political, but aren't so overtly so if a government official is reading a research um, uh, proposal, for example. I think that also we need to start turning challenges into research topics. So I'd honestly be curious to see research on all of the issues that governments have declared sensitive, right? Because when all of a sudden firefighters in the US become sensitive, that's interesting to me, that's political, right? It's political when someone decides that bakeries are sensitive all of a sudden. It's political when someone decides that disaster aid is sensitive. Um, and I'd also sort of shout out some work that Liz Nugent has done um, basically on like government statistics being deliberately bad and how we can look at that as data and a site of meaning making in politics in of itself. So I don't wanna leave people sort of hanging after bringing up all these critiques. This is only the start of a longer discussion that I uh, really look forward to having with everyone. That concludes the speakers on our panel confronting old and new obstacles to political science research, part of the POMAP's 12th annual conference held June 9th and June 10th of 2021. Thank you so much for listening.